Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our November 8th. 2007 edition of the show. It's 4.07 on the clock. Before we get started, a couple quick reminders. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, that's RG Larson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash out the rabbit hole. Every now and then a book comes along that is so important that you just want to run out and get copies for all your friends and enemies and everyone in between. This is the case with the just-released The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot by Naomi Wolf. We've had several commentators on this program talk about the serious threat our current government has become to the continuance of America as a free democratic republic. But none of these commentators has done such a remarkable job of taking these numerous and urgent dangers and presenting them in such a clear, concise, stark, and sober manner as Ms. Wolf. Naomi Wolf is a social critic, political activist, and leading feminist thinker. She is the author of several other books, including the international bestseller, The Beauty Myth. And uh, so she is, I think, on the board, and we will be talking about her New book, The End of America. Naomi Wolf, we got you online here? Yes, I'm right here, and thank you for all those very kind things you said. Well, I meant every word of it. This really book has uh, really caused a uh, ripple in my psyche. Or <laughs> mm-hmm. I was already kind of worked up about these things, and, and now I'm seeing this is, this is a thing where you're putting it out there, so it, it makes it very clear and concise, and other people who maybe are not so worked up about this don't understand the danger we're facing, can see this now, and can feel inclined to act. And I think that's a really important thing that you also do. This is not just a way to scare people. This is like, you know, we've got to do something. And the time is not too late, but it may be very soon. So thank you. Oh, thank you. And, I, you know, I've heard that quite a lot. I mean, you know, we're all aware of each of these threads individually, and um, I, I do find that putting them all together and showing, you know, how uh, it, it uh, imitates, the situation imitates um, situations in the past, uh, does sort of make people kind of see what's happening in a, in a, in a different light and, and feel more kind of urgently eager to address it and stop it. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the end of America. It's really an extended letter to a friend that now is like an open letter to America. Tell us about the process that led you to do that. Sure. Well, I have an older friend who um, is the daughter of Holocaust survivors. And, you know, when we would speak about current events now, she kept saying, they did this in Germany, they did this in Germany. And I really thought this was way over the top. Um, but finally, she sat me down and, and sort of forced me to read some histories. And when I did, my hair stood on end because I realized she wasn't talking about the later years, 37, 38. She wasn't talking about National Socialist outcomes. But she was talking about the early years, 1930, 31, 32, when we forget, you know, Germany was a parliamentary democracy, a modern state. And she was talking about the tactics that a group of people used to systematically close down a constitutional democracy legally. You know, we forget that the Nazis came to power entirely legally um, through a series of tactics. And and then, you know, of course, I saw not only echoes of tactics and strategies, but actual echoes of sound bites, images, scenarios that we're seeing in America today. And then I, I read 
other books about times when would-be dictators wanted to close down an open society or crush a democracy movement. And I looked at uh, Italy in the 20s, because Mussolini was the great pioneer for this blueprint. I mentioned Germany in the 30s, uh, Russia in the 30s, East Germany in the 50s, Czechoslovakia in the 60s, uh, Pinochet's coup in Chile in 1973, and the crackdown by the Chinese Politburo in the 80s against a democracy movement. And what became clear is that whether they're on the left or the right, all would-be dictators do the same 10 things. It's like a blueprint. They take the same 10 classic steps um, and then with horror, I realized that we're seeing those 10 steps underway right now. And you mentioned um, this letter of warning to young patriot. I realized I had to write about this urgently um, for a younger friend I knew, a young man, a patriot who was going to marry a young woman I mentor. And I realized he, like many of us, urgently needed a refresher course in really accessible language about how societies close down and how to protect democracy. And that's why I wrote it the way I did. Yes, and and it's a it's about 150 pages. It's a it's a quick read, and so I mean this this is you know we've all got really busy lives, so it's like a book that I think people are more inclined to pick up, and they can go through quickly. And you it, you just it it is so concise and efficient, and I think this this is really important. And so, uh, could you go over the the ten steps? And sure. I mean, we can go into a little more detail later, but just kind of list those for us first, sure. and then we can talk well, about it. Yeah. Sure, I'll, I'll do them really fast. The first thing a would-be dictator always does is to invoke a terrifying internal and external threat. And often this can be a real threat that the would-be dictator will, will hyper-manipulate. For instance, Stalin scared Russians in the 30s by talking about sleeper cells, which is one of the many phrases from the 30s uh, that you hear again and again now. We didn't hear about sleeper cells in the Clinton years. And, and he, he, this was totally invented. He said that these were capitalist agents who are infiltrating Soviet society, dressed like good Soviet citizens, acting like good Soviet citizens, who are going to rise up at a signal and create capitalist terrorist mayhem. Mm -hmm. Um, So this was totally invented, but it terrified people. But then Pinochet in Chile uh, invoked a real threat, armed insurgents, and there really were armed insurgents. But then he used fake documents, what he called Plan Z, purporting to show that they were going to, again, rise up and bomb all this infrastructure at once and assassinate these leaders and this terrified Chileans and made them yield uh, when he staged a coup. And we, this is common, that would-be dictators use fake documents to hide the threat. For instance, we saw the yellow cake forged documents that backed up um, the White House's claim that, you know, I- Iraq was going after uh, yellow cake to, to create n- nuclear weapons. Uh, and this was the, the fake documents that, that led us into falsely into a war. Um, the second thing a would-be dictator always does is to create a secret prison system. And by that, I mean an unaccountable prison system outside the rule of law where torture takes place. And often they will create uh, military tribunals that strip prisoners of due process. Uh, For instance, you know, Mussolini pioneered this. Uh, Hitler studied Mussolini. You know, Stalin studied Hitler. Hitler studied Stalin. All the great dictators studied one another. And then petty dictators in the second half of the 20th century kind of reproduced, you know, the the greatest hits. But... um, each of them created a secret prison system, and the reason this is so uh, dangerous for ordinary Americans is that what they always do is they start by torturing people at the margins of society. You know, in Germany, it was like 
in the early years, torture was still illegal, but the SA were, you know, created these makeshift torture cellars, and they, and Germans knew about it. They laughed about it. You know, there were, there were cartoons in the press, the way we watched 24, you know, entertainment about this. Uh, but it was like communists, whatever, you know, homosexuals, whatever, anarchists, whatever. But then what always happens is a blurring of the line. And uh, sooner or later, once the state begins to torture those at the margins, sooner or later, abuse is directed at citizens in the heart of civil society. And it is always, unfortunately, people like you and me, it is always journalists, editors, opposition leaders, outspoken clergy, labor leaders. Um, but and, right now, and, we, we and, have the sorry. secret prison system, and they're only... Uh, torturing people with names like Ahmed and Ali, and they have darker skin. So most of us think, you know, Don't that's care. not me. But here's why, we, here's why we, we need to care, apart from the moral issue. Uh, the president, believe it or not, has claimed the right to call any of us innocent American citizens an enemy combatant. And it's like Mother May I. If he says it, it's, it makes it so. And what that means is if he says, Naomi, you're an enemy combatant, even though I haven't done anything, uh, they can take me to a 10 by 12 foot cell in a, in a Navy brig and keep me there for three years, or you, or anyone listening, in solitary confinement, making it difficult for us to see our families, contact our lawyers, get charges filed. And while they can't torture us yet, psychiatrists know that prolonged isolation um, makes mentally healthy people insane. Um, so there's always this blurring of the line. The, the third thing would be dictators always do is create a paramilitary force that's not accountable to the people. For instance, Mussolini pioneered the black shirts, and he sent them to beat up, uh, you know, newspaper editors or to intimidate people counting the vote at the polls in the 20s while it was still a democracy. Hitler, you know, imitated this with his brown shirts, and they beat up journalists and so on, and intimidated people counting the vote at the polls in Germany. You saw in 2000, the, you know, it's odd scene for America, identically dressed Republican staffers in white shirts and chinos, intimidating people counting the vote at the polls. And, um, of course, we now have Blackwater. And w most of us know that Blackwater just massacred 17 Iraqi civilians in cold blood and are, are, have been operating outside the law there, but most of us don't yet know that and Blackwater has close ties to the White House that um, Homeland Security invited Blackwater to patrol the streets of New Orleans in the wake of Katrina and their business model. And Jeremy Scahill reported that contractors were firing at civilians and their business model calls for expanded operations here in the United States in the event of a natural disaster or, quote, a public emergency. And to close the circle, the Defense Authorization Act of 2007 gives the president alone the power to declare a public emergency. So, uh, you know, this keeps me awake at night because Blackwater, I discovered last week, opened a training facility in Illinois, in the heart of the country. They opened a facility in Southern California. They're building a, a, an entity along the border, trying to get into border patrol. Um, so nothing prevents Blackwater from being deployed uh, in New York tomorrow. And I just blogged about how they've got their eye on Midtown Manhattan. They've got their eye on airport security, um, all kinds of interventions in American life. Shall I go on to the fourth one and then skip ahead? Uh, well, real quick, um, they haven't quite opened here in San Diego yet. We're still trying to stop that. So. Trying to stop it. Thank uh, God. So. Yeah, I, I actually, I heard about that, and I'm, I'm really, really happy about it. Um, and I, you know, hope and pray that, you know, you guys push back in time, but, you know, then I worry about North Carolina, and then I worry about Illinois. Um, and basically, I worry about a situation where even if you guys prevail, the president can basically send them wherever he wants um, in the rest of the country. 
So, so uh, Hitler had the brown shirts, Mussolini had the black shirts, and we have now black shirts U.S. I mean, black water USA. Yeah. <laughs> that was yeah. kind of a joke. And, you know, the thing about what I call a fascist shift, and I use that term very conservatively, very technically, uh, one definition of fascism is when the state starts to use terror against the individual. The thing about that is that when a paramilitary um, get deployed by the state, you can still have a functioning democracy, just like in Italy and Germany. You can have, you know, civil society institutions operating, like newspapers being published, judges rendering judgments, you know, elections being held. But people start to censor themselves because you start to see more and more scenes of citizens being tasered when they ask a question. You know, the essay used to drag people out of lecture halls, uh, you know, and everyone would sit perfectly still, like they did in Florida, watching this kid get tasered. Um, people... You know, once the paramilitary are on the street, uh, even, you know, your representatives become intimidated. And the founders knew this, by the way, which is why they have the Second Amendment. They knew firsthand, uh, you know, what an occupying force that's not accountable to the people can do to citizens because King George's mercenaries were breaking into their homes and raping, you know, colonial women and, you know, terrifying the children. And, and the founders knew that, you know, citizens go quiet when there is a standing army to intimidate them. And that's why they insisted on the Second Amendment, which means the National Guard is answerable to the governors and the people. And it means that Congress, you know, uh, constrains the laws, that, uh, I'm sorry, the wars that are being waged. Um, and they would have been horrified to see that the president, you know, doesn't just have Blackwater now, but he has federalized the National Guard so that... Tomorrow, he can um, send the National Guard of Alabama to impose a curfew on the citizens of New York over the objections of the governors of Alabama and New York and tell Congress about it after the fact. Now, this is supposed to be illegal, uh, but it's not being enforced. There are laws against the president doing that. Yeah, but that got reversed by the 2007 Defense Authorization Act, which basically gutted uh, the laws I think you're referring to are posse comitatus. Um, which it means that you're not supposed to federalize the National Guard. But this law, the Defense Authorization Act, basically overrides that and gives the president the power to take charge of the National Guard. Now, can that still be fought out in court, though? Can somebody challenge the constitutionality of that? Well, we're going to get to that. We've got a very fabulous challenge coming up. I can tell you now, if you like. Um, the good news is, uh, you know, we're driving this movement, a democracy movement, and a number of, of lawyers, including the National Lawyers Guild, just yesterday itemized the crimes against the Constitution and the crimes against federal statute that this administration, you know, has committed and, and is calling for investigations um, and holding those, those who have committed the crimes accountable, including, you know, if the investigation leads into the office of the vice president and the president, so be it. Right, and, and uh, Dennis Kucinich has introduced articles of impeachment against Vice President Cheney, and it, that's actually still, that's in the Judiciary Committee now. I mean, many people are saying it doesn't have a chance of going anywhere, but at least he, I, I feel Dennis Kucinich is doing his patriotic duty and uh, what he's required to do. Yeah, I, I entirely agree with you, and I actually feel that there is kind of a shift in the wind. I mean, someone just sent me an email that showed that... Um, all of Vermont supported a resolution for impeachment and that there was a scientific poll done of Vermont and 64% voted in favor of impeaching Cheney and 61% in favor of impeaching uh, Bush. And that's a, you know, that's a substantial, that's an almost 
that's almost, I mean, it's got to be bipartisan on some level. Um, and I, I'm seeing more and more lawyers and, and, and judges kind of waking up and saying, you know what, this is a horrific nightmare, and, and this is a criminal assault on the Constitution. Uh, but, you know, it is a race against time, because as people wake up, and this is very classic in a closing society, as people start to recognize the threat, those who are seeking to close the society ramp up their... Um, uh, their assault on the law, and they also, uh, I'm sorry to say, historically ramp up disorienting spectacle. Um, the months leading up to a- an election in a closing society tend to be very unstable. They tend to have um, hyped threats or provocations to disorient people. And we, well, we did see some fake terror alerts before the 2004 election, or at least one in Ohio. Uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. and Robert Larson, and I'm talking today to Naomi Wolf, and we're discussing her book, The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. And uh, one of the really uh, great things she does in this book is lays out very clearly 10 steps that, that all societies in the past that that move towards fascism or authoritarianism took 10 steps and and how many of those are being at least partially implemented now in the united states or over the last few years and we've gone over a few of these uh, steps naomi uh, wh- where were we at on the, the steps? Well, number four and and these are the you know the big four with this foundation in place everything else sort of follows um naturally but the fourth big uh step is to create a surveillance apparatus aimed at ordinary citizens and, you know, of course, in East Germany, uh, there was a Stasi, the secret police. Um, but, you know, Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin all had uh, a very elaborate surveillance society. Just ordinary people knew they were continually under surveillance. Their phones were being tapped and their, you know, mail was being opened. Um, in fact, you know, Germany passed something called the Enabling Act, which is very much a model for the Patriot Act. And it was after this uh, hype terror assault on the Reichstag, on you know the equivalent of our Capitol Hill. And amazingly, the working parliament, the Democratic Parliament, uh, passed the Enabling Acts by a great majority because they didn't want to be seen as unpatriotic. And so we saw the exact same repetition of history. And by the way, the, the gutting of civil liberties represented by that action in Germany opened the door for the horror to come. It, no, nothing could have followed if um, the equivalent of Congress in Germany hadn't gutted their own power and their own constitution. So with the surveillance apparatus in Germany, you know, in the 50s, everyone thought that they were being spied on, and so everyone was intimidated. After the wall fell, it turned out that only 10% of people had a Stasi file. So, you know, all you need to do to intimidate people is let them know that there is surveillance. Now, surveillance in the United States has gotten so intense that when you get on a plane, they know who your seatmate is, what you're reading, where you're going when you get off the plane, and what the phone number is there. And um, this is a very personal issue for me because for about a year and a half when I traveled, uh, I would get the quadruple S uh, security risk mark on my boarding pass. And again and again, I had the extra search. And I, you know, finally a TSA agent said, you're on the list. And uh, I'm like, the list? And I, I checked it out. And sure enough, a number of critics of the administration or environmentalists and anti-war activists are on the watch list. Um, Richard Murphy, top constitutional scholar, who just gave a speech uh, critical of the president's assault on the Constitution, found himself on the list. David Altoon, a colonel in the military, decorated war veteran who was critical of the war in Iraq, found himself on the list. His 83-year-old mother's on the list. His 15-year-old son is on the list. Media Benjamin of Code Pink, the anti-war group, is on the list. And the, the stories are getting scarier. I mean, 
two weeks ago, I was at a conference and the keynote speaker was late because an environmentalist, because TSA agents had gone onto the plane and taken him physically off the plane. And I just interviewed Ann Summers in Australia, who's the top feminist there. And she said, and she was um, at the time chair of Greenpeace International, and that when she flew through LAX to go to the Greenpeace board meeting in Mexico, they detained her for five hours each way. And she said, can I see a lawyer? And they said, ma'am, you don't have a right to a lawyer because where you are is not in the United States. Like they're saying there's this part of LAX that is not in the United States. And that, that's true uh, for airports, that if before you go through um, customs, you're not actually in the U.S. And she said, why are you detaining me? And they said, ma'am, this is not detention. Detention is when I lock you up in the cells out back. Um, so we're hearing like more and more intimidation of, of activists crossing borders, and uh, it's very scary surveillance and and um, you know the border uh, border control because in February unless we push back um, the control of the list goes from the airlines to the TSA and also borders close in the sense that there's a regulation that's going to go through unless we stop it that in February you're going to need to apply to the in order to cross the border to get an airline ticket. And that's exactly what the difference was between 1931 and 1934 when the border started to close. Yeah, scary stuff, scary stuff. So anyway, um, yeah, I don't know how much time we'll have to really go thoroughly through all the rest of the 10 steps. So I do want to, you know, I'll just list these really quick. You have uh, infiltrate citizens groups, arbitrarily detain and release citizens, target key individuals, restrict the press cast criticism as espionage and dissent as treason and subvert the rule of law. And, and you uh, show historically how those were all done in these other countries and how there are steps now being taken in each one of these instances of putting these things into place here in the U.S. And we'll, we'll get into these as much as we can, as time permits, but I, I do want to go over a couple of other things while we have time, uh, Naomi. Uh, mm-hmm. The I want to, you know, I said at the beginning of the show, and I want to reiterate this, is that you're putting this information out there, and it's very frightening, but but it's all very factually correct. But you're not doing this just to scare people. You're wanting to embolden people and let them know that we, we've we got to stop this, but we have to act now. So talk about that, what it is we need to be doing now. Right. So important. I mean, when I say we're in a race against time, I I can't say that passionately and urgently enough. I mean, right now we are one set of arrests away from a closed society. You know, if I open the newspaper tomorrow and I read that half the reporters at the Washington Post um, are being prosecuted by the Justice Department under the Espionage Act, which the White House has threatened reporters with, uh, you know, I know that you can get 10 years under the Espionage Act. You know, Eugene Debs got a 10-year prison sentence for giving a speech about the Constitution under the Espionage Act, which was last used in the late teens to round up people like me and you and um, many of your listeners, activists, child labor leaders, teachers, anti-war critics. Uh, they were rounded up and some of them were beaten in prison and uh, that quelled dissent for a decade. So, you know, if that happened tomorrow, that's the point at which I would go quiet. Um, we all have our kind of tipping point in a closing society. There are other scary scenarios. You know, at the end of the book, I, I run through this series of what-ifs uh, in the events leading up to an election, all of which are, are plausible now. I mean, um, you know, looking at Congress now really makes me think of this scene in 1920 in Italy when 
Mussolini, you know, his black shirts had already marched on Rome. And the, the parliament kept trying to negotiate with him, and they kept offering him these different cabinet positions. And, uh, and you know, they offered him four different cabinet positions, and, and he was just waiting for them to realize that the time for negotiating was over. Um, and, and I feel like that's what's happening right now in Congress. Congress keeps saying, but wait a minute, we're Congress. You know, you have to answer our subpoena. You, you can't just ignore us. You can't just issue all these signing statements. And it's like the Bush administration is like, you know, just waiting for them to notice that it's a different, yes, it's a different game now. So here's what we need to do. We need to wake up, and we need to wake up in a bipartisan way. Um, it is so important to reach out to independents, conservatives, evangelicals, people across the political spectrum, libertarians. So, you know, this is so transpartisan an issue. The founders would have wanted all of us, regardless of party affiliation, to stand up for democracy and the rule of law and to fight for the Constitution. So what we need is three things. We need a, a, a grassroots democracy movement, bipartisan. You can go to AmericanFreedomCampaign.org on the left or AmericanFreedomAgenda.org on the right. They're parallel organizations. And we need to kind of rise up in our millions to confront these uh, abusers, you know, uh, the way that they did uh, to bring down the wall. And there's a 10-point legislative package that you can see on our website. Ron Paul actually just introduced it, and we're looking for a, a Democrat um, to co-sponsor it. And this uh, legislation, things like restore habeas corpus, uh, forbid warrantless wiretapping, would stabilize democracy long enough for us to catch our breath. But, and this is the third thing, I never thought I'd say this, history shows that um, people who are able to do these things you know, it's not safe just to remove them from office because they just regroup. So impeachment is not enough. When I began this journey, I never thought I'd, you know, support impeachment because I thought it was so destabilizing to the country. But now I see how serious they are and how fast they can move and how brutal they are. Um, it's clear that, you know, there are criminals who've basically staged a coup um, and are sort of waiting for the rest of us to figure it out. And we need to prosecute them and put them behind bars if they're found guilty. So uh, I'm happy to say, you know, as I mentioned, that there's been a real breakthrough. The National Lawyers Guild has just itemized the crimes of the administration and is calling for hearings and possible prosecution. And that's exactly how it should proceed according to the rule of law um, in a, in a non-vindictive, non-partisan way, rigorously according to the system that our founders have set up. And... Uh, you know, there are people responding to this across the country. I just heard from someone in Vermont who's signing on. Lawyers across the country are signing on. Um, you know, we're, we're going to send it out on the Internet tomorrow, probably, and we expect lawyers across the country to, you know, sort of rally to the cause, and, and we know that Conyers is open to listening to this. So, um, God willing, uh, you know, we will invoke the rule of law and, and open hearings into possible crimes that have been committed and hold the criminals accountable as they were at Nuremberg. So and the American Freedom Campaign is your organization or you're affiliated right. with that? Yeah. yeah. And the yeah. web address again? It's AmericanFreedomCampaign.org. Okay. And the one on the right is the AmericanFreedomAgenda.org. And, and so, so when you say, this is what you mean when you use the expression rising up, that we need to be rising up. It's, it's getting involved with groups like this and, and just everybody getting together on the left and the right and realizing the criminality that is being perpetrated by our yeah, government. Yeah, and I really want to stress, it's, I don't want us all to point fingers and say you're criminals. That's not helpful. I want 
I want what's happening, which is to, for people to rigorously look at the law and investigate if, if laws have been violated, if crimes have been committed. It's clear that at least three orders of crime have been committed. Um, they committed a crime against uh, federal statute, the law of the land, and wiretapping. They violated U.S. law and international law in torture, and they violated the Constitution by embarking on an illegal war. Uh, but I say let the rule of law unfold. You know, let's not, like, judge the outcome before there's an investigation, but let's do what the founders intended and call for hearings and call for an investigation. Well, right. I and mean, if we... they're found guilty, you know, let, you know let, the, let the investigation lead where it must and then let the rule of law proceed. Right. That's the whole thing. Innocent until pre- proven guilty. We have to believe in that. It seems like some of these people that we're concerned about uh, don't necessarily believe in that, and that that's one of the, the cherished American ideals. And, and you brought up a good point. If you just let these people, you drive them out of office, they regroup. And I mean, we had some people that engaged in some very serious criminal activity. I'm thinking of the Iran-Contra affair and, mm-hmm. and other things related to that. And th- a lot of those people are back in the government now, and they, they were uh, let off in weird ways. Um, I, I got to um, ask you about one thing. Did, sure. I heard you being interviewed on another program, and some somebody asked you about this, and um, what did it, and you had said that you, you didn't, you weren't really fully aware of this, and you were going to look into it, and I want to see if you've had a chance, and sure. that was in, um, in 1934, Marine Corps General Smedley Butler testified oh, before... Oh, it's amazing you're saying this. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Are you there? <laughs> yeah, I'm still here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he testified before a congressional committee, that it, and he said that in 1933, a group of American industrialists and bankers approached him to lead a coup against the FDR government and install a fascist government. And now a recent BBC story claimed that it had documentation that mm-hmm. George W. Bush's grandfather, Prescott Bush, was one of the backers of this coup. Mm-hmm. And in 1942, a company of which Prescott Bush was head, UBC, had its assets seized by the U.S. government because of its Nazi connections. So, I'm yeah, yeah, have you had a chance now to look into this? I guess that's my question. You know, I, I have, and this is the beauty of investigative reporting, that things that start out as rumors on the internet to be disregarded, you know, can actually be either documented or, you know, proven false. I have looked into it, and you are absolutely right. I just met with someone who's writing a fictionalized biography of Smedley, is it Smedley Butler? Smedley Butler, yeah. Yeah, and he uh, said that the archives have recently been open, and he has been working from the documents that actually confirm exactly that. Smedley Butler, you know, had a kind of awakening. You know, he'd been doing the bidding of uh, sort of corrupt interests in crushing, uh, you know, various uh, states in Latin America, and he had this kind of awakening when they sort of the, the the people initiating this coup reached out to him to kind of ha- you know help them. And you're absolutely right; they were major industrialists, Americans who admired the fascist system in in Italy and Germany, and were going to stage a coup. And one of them was um, it was the, either uh, Bush's grandfather, great grandfather. You probably have the information. I think there. it's grandfather Prescott grandfather, Bush. Prescott yeah. Bush, right? And, in fact, uh, their coup was discovered. It was uncovered. Smedley Butler, I think, revealed it before they could get away with it and, and testified to Congress, and it's in, you know, it's in the record. Um, and, and also, so this was revealed, and it was, it was stopped. And FDR, as I understand, made a deal with them that uh, he wouldn't prosecute them if they would not stand in his way in terms of the New Deal. But you're also exactly right, and I've, I, I have reported this out, that 
and this is documented in a very good, rigorously uh, researched book called IBM and the Holocaust, um, that Prescott Bush, in fact, was a a liaison, an affiliate with uh, Fritz Tissen, um, the industrialist in Germany, a Nazi, and that uh, that he made millions and millions of dollars um, out of you know, Nazi fascism, basically, and, and tried to cover up his involvement, but that the family fortune really came from an investment in Nazi fascism. And that I think that it's very important to prosecute Bush because his family history, Prescott Bush knew quite well that war co- crimes prosecution um, was a risk after the war if the tides of people's emotions turned because uh, the Nuremberg trials caught up Fritz and at one point, the Nuremberg lawyers were going to go after and shine a spotlight on the part, the U.S. partners of these industrialists. Um, it, you know, the moment of danger passed, but there was a time when Prescott Bush knew that he was going to be dragged before, you know, possibly before the, 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 you know, the investigators into these crimes, and this would have all been exposed and, and him possibly held accountable. Of course, the industrialists were held accountable, and they got, you know, long prison sentences for criminally profiting from the Third Reich. And by the way, some of the crimes of the Nuremberg trials, the lawyer just explained to me, um, are very analogous to the crimes that would be, you know, revealed if there were to be an investigation of the Bush administration. Yeah, it, this is, it's, it's fascinating, it's troubling, it's disturbing, but I think it, it needs to be out there, and I'm glad to hear that you, you know somebody that's working on bringing this story forward. And, and I bring it up in the sense of, okay... If Grandfather Bush was a fan of fascism, or at least a somehow supporter of it in the 30s and 40s, and former President Bush uh, was a supporter of the fascist dictator Pinochet in Chile in the mm. 70s, mm. should we be surprised that the grandson is now so involved in this current fascist shift in America? Well, I, I would just caution one thing. I mean, uh, you know, there's, there's at this point no doubt that Prescott Bush was not only a fan of fascism, but an investor in fascism, and that the family, you know, fortune, which is not insignificant, if your family money comes from a partnership with fascism, that's going to have a psychological resonance. Um, You can see the profits, massive profits that get made, a.k.a. Halliburton and slave labor in Iraq, when you basically crush democracy and have corporate interests sort of running, uh, you know, a modern state um, with a fascist kind of uh, violent um, pressure. But I think we can't put um, the elder George Bush in that lineage because, you know, all of them supported dictators around the world. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, our foreign policy, you know, Jimmy Carter, you know, didn't sort of bring democracy where he should have in terms of dictators around the world. I mean, that's a, a larger problem. Uh, you know, Clinton didn't over, overturn dictators around the world that we were supporting. Um, well, but definitely the grandfather, you know, and, and definitely there's a model in the family for... Uh, a coup, you know, against the United States. And, and that just blows my mind, because when I started this research, I never thought that I would, you know, find something so biographical in the lineage. Well, right. And, and I, as many people do, feel that the 2000 election was, in effect, a coup. Uh, it, it, yeah, he didn't win the election. There's uh, very serious documentation of that. So uh, this is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson having a discussion today with Naomi Wolf about her book, The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. Uh, Naomi, how are you doing for time right now? I should probably go in about five minutes because I've got a beautiful 12-year-old who 
wants me to help her with her homework. Well, that's that's a good thing. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> getting your your priorities straight. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Riyadh, then let me see where do, what do I want to make sure I ask you before we go. Um, you brought up Ron Paul. I brought up Dennis Kucinich. I find it promising that we have two presidential candidates, these two, mm-hmm. who are at opposite ends of the spectrum mm-hmm. on economic issues. But yet they're very much in agreement on the threat to the Constitution and, and the Bill of Rights posed by things like the Patriot Act, the Military Commissions Act. I mean, you find that promising as well? Uh, you know, I do, and I'd like to see so much more of that. And what I find very inspiring is that I, I have been hearing support for getting this message out, again, from patriots across the political spectrum. I mean, I'm like all over the Ron Paul websites, apparently, um, which is wonderful. And, uh, and here's why that's so beautiful. A, you know, there are many vested interests that want left and right to keep screaming at each other and never talk to each other. I mean, there's a whole kind of industry of pundits and television shows that depend on us hating each other's guts. And it's, you know, if we're going to redeem democracy, one of the things we're going to have to do is, you know, encounter each other as patriots and citizens again and listen to each other. Um, And so it's very hopeful that an issue like this kind of calls up the best in people on the left and the right and, you know, where we find common ground. Um, the other thing that's really hopeful about it, well, is that we're going to need everybody because we're going to need a majority and we're going to need Republicans in Congress and the Senate to, to drive through an investigation. But one reason I hope that um, Republicans listening um, will join this fight is that history also shows that party affiliation doesn't protect you in a police state, in a violent police state. Um, you know, history is full of examples of despot seizing power and then turning on members of their own party, whether it was, you know, uh, Hitler purging his own ranks with the Night of the Long Knives or Stalin wiping out, you know, people in his inner circle. Um, there is no safety in a real police state, uh, and, you know, your party doesn't protect you. I mean, this, this you know, memoir or this account of IBM's involvement with Nazi Germany shows all of these very senior um, businessmen, CEOs of this major corporation in Nazi Germany, which, you know, was basically a subset of IBM. And they were absolutely petrified, of, and they were good Nazis, and, you know, they were absolutely petrified of taking any step that might, you know, conflict with the party line or that might, you know, possibly annoy anyone in power because they would whisper, you know, there are concentration camps. The concentration camps were for them as well. Uh, or a threat for them as well. And so, you know, what I, I hope and trust is that Republicans will see that the threat from a police state, even if it's run by allegedly one of their own, is so much greater than um, the threat posed by, you know, any shift, you know, uh, from election to election, uh, from party to party in a working democracy. Well, yeah, okay, I, I better let you go. I, I realize you, you have uh, th- uh, family things to attend to there, Naomi Wolf. So if you want to leave us with a uh, closing comment or uh, just give out the web address again or any, anything, sure. way for us to take action. Well, yeah, I guess my closing comment is I, I think the founders wanted us to remember that they counted on us, not some pundit class or political class. They counted on ordinary citizens to see themselves as the leaders in a fight like this. And they count on ordinary citizens to defend democracy. So I hope we all remember how powerful we are when we take action and work together. Um, And I believe we can rise up and save the country. 
and the website is AmericanFreedomCampaign.org, and you might want to look at the uh, National Lawyers Guild resolution um, for holding hearings and their enumeration of the crimes, which I think is very exciting. And you certainly want to send a message, and there are many websites through which you can do this, to Pelosi um, and Leahy, you know, supporting taking the um, impeachment proceedings seriously and calling for hearings. And so let's save our country. And thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today, Naomi Wolf, and for writing the book, The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. And uh, I'll talk to you again sometime. I'd love to. Thank you so much. All right. Have, have a great evening. All right. Yes, Naomi Wolf, and that book is The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. And I urge you to, to take a look at this book. And it, it's, like I said, it's, it's, it's an excellent resource because it's so concise and you know it's about 150 pages it lays out these 10 steps and and she's very thorough about this of going over these past uh, dictatorships authoritarian governments fascist governments over the past hundred years and how they all every single one engaged in these 10 steps and that you can see every one of those at least to some degree being at least partially implemented in America, and this should be a huge red flag, a big warning to all of us. And the time is not too late, and that's a point that uh, Naomi Wolf makes very strongly in the book, is that we still have time, but not much. And you you got to find out what the hell is wrong with our Congress, what the hell is wrong with Nancy Pelosi, why did she say impeachment is off the table, if there has ever been an administration that that uh, impeachment was put in the Constitution for, this is it. Uh, I mean, nobody has ever uh, been engaged in behavior that so loudly screamed out for impeachment. So we need to get on Nancy Pelosi, write the letter, send the emails, make the phone calls, uh, get in touch with uh, Congressman John Conyers. He's the head of the Judiciary Committee. The articles of impeachment against uh, Vice President Cheney that Congressman Kucinich entered are sitting in in the Judiciary Committee now, uh, of which uh, Congressman Conyers is head. So you need to get in touch with him. Let him know how you feel about this. Uh, go to these websites that uh, Naomi Wolf has talked about. Hers is the American uh, Freedom Campaign. You can also check out the Center for Constitutional Rights. You can also uh, check out the Lawyers Guild. And as she said, there are groups on the left and the right that are feeling the same way about this, that there's a serious threat to our Constitution. There is a, th- a serious threat to America remaining as a free democratic republic and i mean i think many of us have just gotten to this place where we take it for granted we are so far removed you know 200 years from the uh the founding of this country more than 200 years and and uh, people who who died for these ideals it just seems like ancient history but what they were uh, talking about what they were fighting for it, it's something that always has to be uh fought against we always have to stand vigilant this this free democratic republics like we have it's a it's an anomaly in history the majority of of history things like this did not exist people lived under emperors and kings and dictatorships and other forms of oppression this is a rare thing it's a it's a gift and we are um being ungrateful if we don't stand up and defend it. So uh, these are the things we need to do. So uh, check out the book, The End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. That was uh, my guest today, the author of that book, Naomi Wolf. And again, check out the 
website, AmericanFreedomCampaign.org. So we've got about 10 minutes left here on the show. I'm going to go to a little music, and uh, then I'll be back for a little more talk, let you know about some other things coming up. Robert Larson, KUCI in Irvine. This is the Out the Rabbit Hole radio show. KUCI, 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is the Out the Rabbit Hole radio show. Uh, We had an interview with Naomi Wolf today on that book we talked about, Was the End of America, Letter of Warning to a Young Patriot. Uh, Very powerful and important book. And I want to let you know that I've got coming up next week on Out the Rabbit Hole, Thursday at 4 p.m., I'm going to have an interview with Dean Baker, and we're going to discuss his book, The Conservative Nanny State, How the Wealthy Use the Government to Stay Rich and Get Richer. That will also be a great interview. That's next week at 4 p.m. here on Out the Rabbit Hole. we got uh, Your Dog's Breakfast coming up in about uh, four minutes with Ryder Palmier, and that's always good stuff, so stay tuned for that. This is uh, Robert Larson uh, giving you, well, one last reminder. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me feedback, it's rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash out the rabbit hole. So I will be talking to you next week, Thursday at 4 p.m. So I'll say until then. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org.